guys welcome back to another episode it's your girl katie two episodes in 24 hours how fucking happy are you guys oh my god i was just about to freak out because i couldn't find my lighter but we found it we found it we are back with part two of robert berdella I know you guys are probably pretty shocked and I just like abruptly ended that episode, the last episode, but honestly I was recording and then I was just talking and having a great time and I looked down and saw that it was like at an hour and a half and I was like, oh shit, you know, I try to keep the episodes around 45 minutes just to, you know, make sure that they're not super long. Um, But yeah, you guys got a little bit longer of an episode with the last one and I hope you enjoyed it. We're going to go ahead and finish it off today, but before we jump into the second part of Robert Berdella, um, there is something that we need to discuss. So I'm sure this is something that a lot of you have seen if you've been on social media today, today being Sunday, but I definitely feel, you know, this is something that we had to discuss I mean, one, because this is something that we unfortunately keep seeing happening in our country, but I also live pretty close to where it happened at. So I just kind of felt like it would be wrong if I didn't get on here and discuss it with you guys and let you guys know what happened. So we're going to jump into this before we jump into the case today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So last night on November 19th of this year, obviously 2022, um, a gunman kills five at an LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs. And I'm just going to read you guys the news article. This is from CNN.com. Again, you guys know I'll always link everything, but we're just going to kind of read through this and talk about it. So a 22-year-old gunman entered an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs, Colorado, just before midnight Saturday and immediately opened fire, killing at least five people and injuring 25 others before other people in the nightclub confronted him and stopped him, police said on Sunday. The suspect in the shooting at the Club Q was identified as Anderson Lee Aldrich, according to Colorado Springs Police Chief Adrian Vasquez. He used a long rifle in the shooting, and two firearms were found at the scene, Vasquez says. So this is where, sorry if you guys can hear me sparking my joint in the background here, but this is, this next article is like what really pisses me off. Not the next article, but the next paragraph of this article. So it says, Police said they were investigating whether the attack was a hate crime and noted Club Q's relationship with the LGBT community. Here's the thing, right? Like when we we keep seeing this happening, I mean, the mass shootings, shootings in general, you know, like just everything with guns because they don't really care. You know, here in America, like 
you can anybody can get a gun literally anybody and their fucking best friend can get a gun but we can't get health care we can't get formula we can't even get control over our own bodies as women we can't decide who we want to marry if we decide that we want to marry somebody of the same gender that's wrong if we decide that we want to change genders that's wrong But anybody can get a gun. So this is the problem that we keep running into is that it's so fucking easy for anybody to get one. And then things like this happen. So the police like to me saying that they're investigating whether this was a hate crime or not. Well, no fucking shit. It was a hate crime. Like this was a MAGA white dude supporter that walked into a fucking LGBTQ nightclub and opened a fire because that's who he is he's hateful so just the fact that they even mentioned oh we're we're investigating whether this was a hate crime or not like fuck you guys you know it was a hate crime like let's not do that like let's not continue to be stupid and play ignorant like we don't know what's going on because it's happening right in front of us and the fact that we keep pretending like we don't know what's going on is the reason that it keeps happening right because every time this happens what do they do they throw a politician usually the president on the fucking news and you know he gets on there and he says oh this is this is really sad this this shouldn't have happened it just awful that this happened yes yeah it's fucking terrible that it happened but all they do is get on there they make a statement about it it puts a band-aid over it for everyone until it happens again in six months and I'm honestly just tired of it like I'm tired of waking up in the morning and hearing about a fucking shooting or somebody dying or multiple people dying like it's exhausting how long are we going to allow this to go on before we actually implement any kind of change like that's my question for the government if any of you fucks are listening that's my question for you. So in a statement on social media Club Q said that it was devastated by the senseless attack on our community. And they thanked the quick reactions of heroic customers that subdued the gunmen and ended this hate attack. Club Q posted earlier in the day that its Saturday night lineup would feature a punk and alternative show at 9 p.m., followed by a dance party at 11. The club also planned to hold a drag brunch and a drag show on Sunday for Transgender Day of Remembrance. The club's website now says that it will be closed until further noticed. Governor Jared Polis ordered flags lowered to half-staff at all public buildings statewide to honor the victims of the mass shooting beginning Monday until Saturday, according to a news release from his office. Flags will be lowered for five days to remember each of the five individuals who lost their lives in this senseless tragedy, the release read, to further honor and remember the victims and those injured in this tragedy. The Polis Primavera administration will also be flying the pride flag at the Colorado State Capitol for the next five days. The shooting came as the calendar turned to Transgender Day of Remembrance on Sunday and is reminiscent of the 2016 attack at an LGBTQ nightclub in Orlando, Florida, in which a gunman who pledged allegiance to the Islamic State killed 49 people and wounded at least 53. Colorado has been the site of some of the most heinous mass shootings in U.S. history, including the 1999 shooting in Columbine High School and the 2012 movie theater shooting in Aurora. 
Colorado Springs was the site of a mass shootings at a Planned Parenthood in November 2015 that left three dead and at a birthday party last year that left six dead. According to data from the Gun Violence Archive, there have been more than 600 mass shootings in the United States so far this year, defined as an incident in which at least four people are shot, excluding the shooter. So Joshua Thurman told CNN affiliate KOAA he was inside the club dancing when he heard gunshots and saw a muzzle flash. He said that he ran to the dressing room, got on the ground, locked the doors, and called the police immediately. Thurman said he heard the sun Thurman said he heard the sound of more gunshots, people crying, and windows being shattered. When he came out, he saw bodies lying on the ground, broken glass, and blood, he said. The violence lasted just minutes. Police received numerous 911 calls starting at 11.56 p.m. Officers were dispatched at 11.57 p.m. An officer arrived at midnight and the suspect was detained at 12.02 a.m., police said. A total of 39 patrol officers responded, police said and Fire Department Captain Mike Smaldino said 11 ambulances went to the scene. Authorities initially said that 18 people were injured, but later adjusted that total up to 25. 19 of the 25 injured had gunshot wounds. Colorado Springs Mayor John Suthers, Southers. Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers told CNN's Jim Acosta Sunday, Based on communication with medical personnel, Souther said he expects the injured victims to survive and the community is crossing our fingers for no more fatalities. The suspect is being treated at a hospital, police added. Officers did not shoot at him, police said. Which is another thing that we see in like, I don't know, like I'm not saying that they should have necessarily, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but like was he already detained? Like why... Why was he just so, like, nonchalantly just arrested? Like, I don't know. I feel like if it would have been, like, a brown man or a Hispanic man, like, he would have been shot fucking dead. So it's just, like, <sighs> I don't know. Again, just something that we're seeing over and over again, and I wanted to make sure that we discuss this because it's just, like, it's an attack on a community because somebody is hateful, and it's a senseless act of violence, and I am so fucking tired of seeing it like I'm honestly just tired of seeing it it's heartbreaking like when people that you love are a part of these communities and you can't even guarantee their safety like they can't even go out for a night of fun because shit like this happens so and honestly is a tragedy um I personally am sending love to all of the families that were affected by this to all of the victims to all of those who were injured um we need change. Like, I really just don't know how else to put that. We have to stop putting a band-aid over this and actually fucking implement change or this is going to continue happening. That's really the fucking truth at the end of the day. Like, it's fucking sick that Republicans are more worried about keeping their gun rights than they are about keeping human lives on the planet. Like, I am so over that. I honestly got into it with my dad today because we were talking about this and he was like, "Um, well, you don't need to worry about it. And I was like, no, I do need to worry about it. Like, these are human lives. Like, these are our brothers and sisters that are being attacked. Like, 
why would you not want to say anything? Why would you not want to put your foot down? Like, I'm going to stand on what the fuck I believe in. And I believe in everybody being treated equally and everybody being protected in every community. Like, not just my own. Like, all of these communities. Like, it affects us all. So, I don't know. That's my piece. That's my piece. But again, I will leave some articles in the episode notes so that you guys can read more thoroughly into this and kind of collect your own information or additional information about what happened um just obviously so sad so sad sending love and peace to all the families and victims that were affected by this tragedy so also there is a gofundme um that's titled support for the club q family and survivors and i'll also link that below if you guys are interested in donating and helping out any of the families or the survivors of the tragedy Um, It looks like they raised $264,913 out of a $500,000 goal. So if you're able to go drop like five or ten bucks over there, I definitely encourage you to. Um, Let's help out any way we can. Let's give back to whether it's your community or not. It doesn't really matter. Let's always give back however we can. Okay, so jumping back into Robert Burdella, obviously we were talking about him in the last episode. Um, pretty crazy story. I tried to give you guys a little bit of a warning, but I don't know if it was good enough or not. It's a fucking awful story. This man is very, very sick. Um, we left off on the part where he had his last victim um and then he got away and now we are getting into like the arrest part of the case so jumping right into it during later questioning at the kansas city police department bryson who was the victim that got away divulged that his captor had showed him polaroid images of men who appeared to be deceased and that he was told that he would never leave the property and that if he became a nuisance or threat he would either be subjected to greater levels of torture than what he had already endured or simply killed. So he's like threatening him. He's like, look, here's your two choices. One, you're staying here. You can choose to chill and be here and deal with low-key torture, or you can turn the fuck up and I'm going to turn the fuck up with you. Like just some fucking real psychopath bullshit. On the afternoon of Bryson's escape, Berdella was arrested on charges pertaining to the sexual assault of Christopher Bryson. He declined to allow officers inside his home, and the search warrant earlier requested was drafted to search his property. Corroborating Bryson's claim of having been restrained and tortured in a second-floor bedroom, investigators discovered the bedroom on the second floor was found to have burnt ropes attached to the post at the foot of the bed. Also in the room was an electrical transformer plugged into a wall and with wires leading to the bed. A metal tray containing syringes, small bottles apparently containing prescription drugs, swabs, and eye drops were also close to the bed. Also found in the room was a long iron pipe, various lengths of rope, and leather belts. Investigators also noted that posts on the bed had been extensively worn, suggesting that restraints had earlier been tied to these posts and that the individual or individuals had struggled to free themselves. Searching the house and grounds of 4315 Charlotte Street, 
investigators uncovered a human skull inside a closet on the second floor of his property and a partially decomposed human head in the backyard. The search also uncovered several human vertebrae scarred by both hacksaw and knife marks stowed in a hallway and several human teeth stowed into two envelopes. Both a hacksaw and a miter saw were discovered in the basement of the property, and a chainsaw was also found to be soiled with blood stains, flesh, and pubic hairs. Luminol tests revealed that the floor of Berdella's basements and two plastic trash barrels were extensively blood stained. So this guy's whole house is a fucking crime scene. Like, I mean, I don't know, like, back then if they, like, didn't think that that kind of stuff could be discovered. I'm not really sure what the storyline there, but his literally his whole house is a fucking crime scene. It's a walking crime scene. Like, ugh. This guy. This guy. 334 Polaroid pictures and 34 snapshot prints of various male individuals were also found within Berdella's house. These pictures showed Christopher Bryson and several other men both in life and death, and many of the images had been taken as the subjects had been tortured. The search also uncovered numerous restraints and sexual devices, pornographic literature, hypodermic needles, and a book on narcotics. Officers also discovered a stenographer's pad containing the detailed torture logs that he had maintained for each victim above a chest of drawers. Several newspaper clippings from the Kansas City Star regarding a missing young man named Jerry Howell, and both a wallet and a driving license belonging to a missing person named James Ferris, was discovered in a closet on the second floor of the property. So not only is his house a walking crime scene, it's literally like, convict me, here's their fucking licenses. Like, oh my gosh, bro. Like, this guy just did not care. He was just like, fuck it, yeah, yeah, fuck it, honestly. Before the search of Burdella's property had concluded, the Kansas City Police Department assembled a special task force of 11 detectives and one sergeant to focus exclusively on Burdella's case. This task force extensively researched Burdella's history, discovering that he was a well-known individual among Kansas City's male hustlers, having earned a reputation for preying on transient young men. Several of these male sex workers were also reluctant to accept him as a client, both because of his reputation for drugging, injecting, and torturing his sexual partners and acquaintances, and also because he had long been considered a suspect in the disappearance of the two men whose personal possessions had been found in his house, Jerry Howell and James Ferris. Missing persons reports have been filed in relation to both these men, and Berdella had been extensively questioned in relation to both of these disappearances. In both instances, he had denied having anything to do with the individual's disappearance. Despite being considered a prime suspect in both cases and being placed under surveillance, police had been unable to find any solid evidence leaking him to either man's disappearance. And in both instances, after giving his initial statement to police, Berdella had indignantly refused to talk further without a lawyer present. 
He would later have his lawyer threaten to file harassment accusations against police unless their questioning and surveillance of him ceased. It's like whole time the hard evidence you guys just needed a warrant for. <laughs> like, hello, he has their fucking licenses. Like, let's get out of here. Like, no hard evidence. <sighs> James Ferris's wife identified him in several instant photos found at Burdella's property, some taken after her husband's death. Paul Howell formally identified one picture of a young man hanging upside down in Burdella's basement as depicting his son. So a bunch of these Polaroid pictures were essentially just a bunch of unidentified men. Like the police didn't know who they were. So basically what happens is they task a bunch of detectives with the job of identifying these men and trying to figure out like, okay, are they dead? Are they alive? If they're dead, what are their circumstances there? If they're alive, where are they at? So a whole investigation opens on just the Polaroids. So as several of these images showed a section of the body of the individual who was taking the photograph, on April 13th, Berdella was ordered to pose nude for a series of photographs in order that portions of his body could be photographed in the precise angle within these images for comparison with the original Polaroid images. So they're like, hey, buddy, it's time for you to be embarrassed. Now you get undressed and we're going to have a photo shoot with you. Humiliate the fuck out of you for our investigation. How does that sound, Berdella? Because that's what you did to all these young men. As numerous male names had been found scrawled upon various stenograph pads at Berdella's address, the detectives began attempting to trace each individual. One of these individuals traced a young man named Freddie Kellogg was able to state to detectives that he and several other young men had lodged with Berdella since the early 1980s and that Berdella had been in the habit of supplying his lodgers with drugs before engaging in sex with them regardless of whether they consented or not. Kellogg also stated that Berdella had expressly stated that a condition of his lodging with him was for Kellogg to persuade young men whom Berdella found attractive to attend parties at Charlotte Street in order that Berdella could drug them. Should Berdella ever discover that any of these individuals was a police informant, he would use this knowledge as a tool in which he could blackmail the individual to his own advantage. In spite of this condition of his living with Berdella, Kellogg further stated that numerous male sex workers and addicts had been reluctant to engage in any form of conduct with Berdella because of rumors regarding his links to the 1984 disappearance of Jerry Howell. In addition to these disclosures, Kellogg was able to name three of the individuals shown in the Polaroids as being Todd Stoops, Robert Sheldon, and Larry Wayne Pearson. These investigators would shortly discover that Berdella had paid a $30 fee to secure bond for Pearson in June 1987, which is equivalent to $72 today, and that no further records existed to indicate that Pearson was still alive. Nonetheless, investigators did discover that in August 1987, Berdella had filed an assault report from a hospital room in which he alleged a man named Larry Pearson had deeply bitten his penis during oral sex, causing a serious laceration. 
an interview with Robert Sheldon's employers at a Kansas City manufacturing plant had confirmed that the young man had been a reliable employee of theirs, but that he had suddenly ceased attending work in April 1985. Which I just think is so sad, like for Larry Pearson specifically, like Berdella paid his bond. It was like 30 bucks, which is like $72 today, which like still, I'm sure Larry, you know, was in a bad place then, but it's just like he literally lost his life over $72. Berdella felt that that was acceptable enough for him to take this man's life. $72. Sick. Shortly after the search of 4315 Charlotte Street had concluded, Berdella was informed of the discoveries at his property. The same afternoon, he was ordered to pose for the series of nude photographs for comparison with the Polaroid images he had taken. Investigators attempted to conduct their first formal investigation with him, although Berdella simply invoked his right to silence in this setting. Investigators later sought to obtain handwriting samples from Berdella in an effort to prove that he had written the notes found within the various stenographed pads discovered at his house. He refused to cooperate and was sentenced to six months in jail for contempt of court. So he's just like, nope, I'm going to invoke my right to silence, but didn't give a fuck about anybody else's right to be alive even at that point. Like, oh, I'm sure like how frustrating for police, you know what I mean? To like know that you have this fucking sicko, you have the dude that has killed these missing people or the reason that these missing people are gone and you're just like trying to get a conviction and he's just like, oh, and that's my cue to stop talking. Like, ugh, I cannot. I want to fist fight that man in the fucking investigation room. I'd be like, oh, Robert. So initially, Berdella was formally charged with one count of felonious restraint, one count of assault, and seven counts of forcible sodomy. As investigators continued their investigation into the discoveries at his property, he was assigned a temporary public defender as his legal representative and held in protective custody in a Jackson County jail in lieu of $500,000 bail, which today would be about $1,119,500. In late April, the skull that was found inside of Berdella's closet was identified through dental x-rays obtained through a subpoena from the University of Kansas Medical Center as that of Robert Sheldon. The same day, a dental identification was made upon Sheldon's skull. Two men separately phoned the Kansas City Police Department to state one of seven unidentified young men shown in the photographs released to the media on April 27th was a former high school acquaintance of theirs named Mark Wallace. When a detective contacted Wallace's sister, she stated that her brother had been missing since mid-1985. Shortly thereafter, investigators discovered that the photograph, in quotes, the letter D, released to the media in this same array was one of Larry Wayne Pearson. As Pearson had once been a ward of the court in Wichita, his dental records were discovered and compared with the skull found in Berdella's backyard. Berdella would formally be charged with the murder by dismemberment of Larry Wayne Pearson in July after the head discovered in his backyard was formally identified as Pearson's on May 12th. 
prosecutors had gathered sufficient circumstantial evidence to accompany the physical evidence retrieved. So they were like, we got it. Match. Fuck with us, Berdella. We got you on Pearson. They were like, we got you here. We're going to work on the other ones, but we got you here. On July 22, 1988, a grand jury formally indicted Berdella for the murder of Larry Wayne Pearson. The following month, he was arraigned and pleaded guilty in the Fourth Circuit of the Jackson County Court before Judge Alvin C. Randall to the first-degree murder of Larry Pearson. The plea was entered following a late-morning recess in the arraignment hearing into this particular murder and came as a surprise both to the judge and prosecuting attorneys. The prosecution team assigned to the case accepted the plea with assistant prosecutor Pat Hall later explaining that this decision as being in the best interest of our client, the people of the state of Missouri. Following the submission and acceptance of this plea, the judge insisted that Berdella confess under oath as to Pearson's death. In response to questioning by his attorneys, Berdella stated, I put a plastic bag over his head and tied it with rope and allowed him to suffocate. When asked if he performed this act deliberately and with malice, Berdella simply stated, yes. He was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Upon being sentenced, Berdella was transferred to the Missouri State Penitentiary to commence his life sentence. He would later be temporarily placed in protective custody at the Potosi Correctional Center due to concerns for his safety. Yeah, because all the men in prison were like, oh, <laughs> step, a f- step a fucking foot in her, Berdella. Step in here. See what happens. Literally. A second guilty plea submitted before the Jackson County Court on August 24th earned Berdella a further life term without parole for one charge of the forcible sodomy against Christopher Bryson, which means six counts of sodomy and one charge of assault were dropped as part of the plea bargain. He would also receive a further term of seven years pertaining to one count of felonious restraint against Bryson on this date. So despite initially pleading not guilty to the remaining five murder charges on September 13, 1988, with the agreement of his two defense attorneys, Berdella ultimately conducted a plea bargain with the prosecutors to avoid the death penalty in these remaining charges. In this plea bargain, Berdella agreed to confess in graphic detail as to whom he had killed, what he had subjected each victim through, how he had killed each victim, and what he had done with their bodies. These confessions were given to prosecutors between December 13th and 15th, 1988. In return for his cooperation, the prosecution agreed not to seek the death penalty at a formal hearing scheduled for 9 a.m. on December 19th. On December 19, 1988, Berdella formally waived his rights to be tried for any of the outstanding murder charges. Upon the understanding that he was to be convicted of one further count of first-degree murder, that of Robert Sheldon, and four counts of second-degree murder, he formally pleaded guilty to each of these charges before Judge Robert Myers and the Jackson County Court Circuit. 
Members of the public were prohibited from attending this hearing with only family members of his victims and news reporters permitted to access the proceedings. In response to these guilty pleas, Judge Myers imposed five further concurrent life sentences with an additional condition bearing any further prospect of parole in the sole case of first-degree murder to which he pleaded guilty. Berdella provided testimony to the prosecutors between December 13th and 15th after he changed his plea and sought approval of their agreement not to seek the death penalty against him if he fully confessed. In this testimony, Berdella claimed that the movie he had first seen in 1965, The Collector, had left a major impression on him. Following the senses of shock and disgust he claimed to have initially experienced after killing his first victim, the movie had resurfaced in his memory and subsequently became a motivating psychological force in the actions that he exhibited against his victims in his subsequent murders. His victims, he stated to investigators, had lost any degree of humanity in his eyes once he had chosen to render them captive. So once he, like, picks who he's gonna, like, you know, but literally fucking torture, he's like, you're not a person to me. Like, you're a pawn to me, like I said in the last episode. It's fucking sick. Berdella confessed that many of the abbreviated entries within his torture logs were simply shorthand terms for methods of abuse he had afflicted upon his victims whereas others would describe either their reactions to these ongoing acts of abuse and torture or his initial observations upon viewing them when he entered the room where he had kept them restrained. The entry reading DC, for example, referred to swabbing their eyes with drain cleaner or the injection of the substance into their vocal cords. Entries that read EK or EKG referred to tortures that were administrated to his captives with electrical shocks, whereas several other entries contain the atomical location where where Berdella administered the abuse or tortured his victims. For example, at one point in relation to his victim James Ferris, Berdella had written an entry reading two and a half Ket NK plus shoulder to indicate that he had injected 2.2 cubic centimeters of ketamine into his victim's neck and shoulder. Other entries such as gag loose, no resist in retie, or very delayed breathing, snoring, were more self-explanatory. Investigators consulted a specialist in toxology into their investigation into Berdella following his arrest. This individual was stated that by judging the notes that Robert had written about his victim, Robert Sheldon, that basically all the drugs that he injected into Sheldon had been very toxic. Furthermore, Berdella confessed to having buried the two victims' heads in his backyard, adding that he retrieved and cleaned the first skull, that of Robert Sheldon, at the same time he buried victim Larry Pearson's head in the same hole. Sheldon's skull was that which Robert placed inside of a closet on the second floor of his property, in an area of the household Berdella referred to as my gallery area. Berdella removed the teeth from this skull and stowed them in envelopes in the same room. He further claimed to have intended to retrieve Pearson's skull once sufficient time had elapsed for it to skeletonize. 
although he was adamant there had been no rational or sinister reasoning for his doing so. In addition, he denied media rumors that he had been engaged in any form of Satanism or that he had sold sections of his victims' bodies at his flea market booth. Which I don't know about that, right? (laughs) Anybody that ever bought anything from him at the flea market was like, oh, to the trash this goes. Not sure if those are actually rabbit teeth. Like, oh my God, sick. And the fact that he's like, oh, I'm not doing this to be sinister. What are you doing it for? He's like, oh, I'm just doing it for giggles. Like, oh my God, fuck out of here, bro. Psycho. Berdella was able to name all of his victims to investigators. Although one victim, Mark Wallace, had been seized by opportunity when he had discovered him seeking shelter from a severe thunderstorm in his tool shed. His other five victims had been captured after he had unsuccessfully tried to steer them away from their general lifestyles and had thus simply become frustrated at the failure of his own efforts. On each victim's capture, Bradella described in graphic detail the sexual, physical, and emotional abuse that he had subjected each victim and which he had recorded within his torture logs. He explained his successive actions to an investigator on December 14th with the statement that he was capturing them first and what developed, developed. Nonetheless, he did not claim that he had tried to prevent any of his victims from developing any form of malnutrition or infection by occasionally administering antibiotics or nutrients as his abuse and torture escalated. So his whole attitude towards this is kind of like, it is what it is. And you know what? I did try to help. He begged me for food. And after I had beat him and fucking busted his anal wall, I tried to give him ice cream. And it's not my fault he didn't want it. Like, oh my gosh, like how far gone do you have to be? You know what I mean? Like literally how far gone do you have to be? The methods of torture exhibited against his victims had concluded the administration of high-voltage electrical shocks, starvation, and the application of detergents to their throats, vocal cords, or eyes, and the bludgeoning of their hands with the intention of rendering these body parts unusable. One other method of torture was the inserting of needles beneath their fingernails. Furthermore, Berdella confessed that the level of abuse he had inflicted had increased with each successive victim, and he had viewed the Polaroid images he had taken of his victims as being a trophy or record of the event. Although police extensively searched for the remains of Berdella's victims throughout their initial investigation into his crimes, the confession Berdella provided to investigators in the autumn of 1988 confirmed the dismembered bodies of all six of his victims had been stowed in trash bags and subsequently taken to a landfill. Consequently, their bodies were never discovered. Mm. So he was like, I'm going to take it where y'all will never find it. Like, so he admitted to it, but they literally were never, never able to find these bodies because they were taken to a landfill. So far, far gone by the time that they even went there. Like, just so fucking awful. In the years following his 1988 convictions and incarceration, Berdella granted an interview to the Missouri-based TV station KCPT and corresponded with numerous individuals. To all concerned, he attempted to restore his image as a sensitive citizen who had simply made mistakes in committing his crimes. 
He further claimed that he had been demonized unfairly by the media before, during, and after his arraignments and plea bargains. Which is just like, dude, demonized? (laughs) You were literally doing demonic shit. Like, what do you expect the media to do in that situation? Be like, oh... Robert made a couple mistakes here. Like, no, get the fuck out of here. Like, that's insane. He was being demonized. Like, oh, now he's the victim. Like, shut the fuck up. Like, oh, my God, I cannot. Berdella also lodged several complaints with prison officials regarding prison conditions. He also wrote several letters to a local minister claiming that prison officials knew of his high blood pressure yet were not providing him with his prescribed heart medication. In 1992, Berdella contacted the counselor whom he had met when he was first incarcerated, Reverend Roger Coleman. He informed Coleman of his distress due to the staff at the Missouri State Penitentiary withholding his heart medication. At 2 p.m. on October 8, 1992, Berdella complained to prison staff of severe heart pains and he was taken from his cell to the prison infirmary. Medical staff determined that his heart was unstable and called an ambulance. Bradella was taken to a hospital in Columbia, Missouri, where he was pronounced dead from a heart attack at 3.55 p.m. He was 43 years old. Shortly after, the judge at his trial, Alvin Randall, was informed of Bradella's death. In response, Randall sarcastically remarked, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. According to published reports, although Berdella had a depressive personality disorder, he was also diagnosed a sexual sadist who gained extreme sexual excitation from the humiliation, pain, and torture to which he subjected his victims. Moreover, despite his claims to media individuals whom he had contacted in the years of his incarceration, he never expressed any degree of remorse for his actions and referred to his victims as play toys in an interview that he granted shortly before his death. So that's the thing. He's like, oh, I made mistakes, but he doesn't feel sorry. He like literally just knows that like that's what he's expected to say. Oh, my God. He's gaslighting the media. (laughs) He's gaslighting the fucking media, literally. In November 1988, auctions of Berdella's vast collections of artifacts and furniture confiscated from his home and business were held on four separate dates with the intention that all proceeds raised at the auction were to be used to pay his mounting legal fees with then ongoing legal proceedings. The auction attracted considerable national interest, attracting telephone bids from across the United States. Although many items sold for less than the expected price, by the end of the first day's auctioneering alone, more than 60000 had been raised for this purpose, which today would be $137,000. Berdella's home was purchased by a local businessman for an undisclosed sum in December 1988. The property was later demolished. So again, just going over his victims before we end here, by the time of his April 1988 arrest, he had abducted, tortured, and murdered at least six young men, although the Kansas City Police Department suspect him of involvement in at least two other disappearances. In addition, despite the fact that more than 20 different men were shown in postures suggesting unconsciousness or death within the 334 Polaroid images and 
and 34 snapshot prints seized from 4315 Charlotte Street following his arrest. Berdella was adamant that the six individuals that were described as victims were the only ones that he had killed. Only ones that he had confessed to, basically. He was like, I'm not confessing to any more, even though there's fucking 35 different men here. Like, ugh. So again, victims were Jerry Howell, age 19, died July 5th, 1984. Robert Sheldon, 20 years old, April 12th, 1985. Mark Wallace, 27, died June 22nd, 1985. James Ferris, 25, died September 26, 1985. Todd Stoops, 23, died June 17th, 1986. And then Larry Pearson, 20 years old, died June 23rd, 1987. And that is the fucked up, crazy story of Robert Berdella, a.k.a. the Collector, a.k.a. the Kansas City Butcher. Like, what a fucking nut. Like, oh, man. That's one of those cases that, like, just when you think it doesn't get worse, like, it gets fucking worse. Like, you know what I mean? Um, That one gave me a headache. That was a woozy. (laughs) You guys will have to let me know what you think about that. If you guys like, like, when I do two-part episodes, you know, they're kind of longer. It gives us a little more time to talk about the details of the case, really jump into it. Um, I will, of course, post all the articles for Robert Bradella in the show notes um, for the information on the Colorado Club Q shooting that happened last night, I'll post links for that. Links for the donations for Christmas donations, of course. Links to support the podcast if you want to help out or donate money for Christmas time. Again, we're going to use it to buy kids presents. So that's where the income from the podcast is going over the next month or so to help out with, you know people who are less fortunate than us in any way that we can again remember to go to club q's gofundme and donate if you can again that will be linked below as well i hope you guys liked this case i mean not liked it but you know what i mean (laughs) i hope it was interesting it definitely is a fucked up story like one of the more fucked up true crime cases that i do know about because it's just like I mean, killing someone is awful, but when you're, like, torturing them and, like, getting satisfaction out of it before you take them, like, that's just a whole nother level of, like, fucked up in the true crime world, you know? So, I don't know. You guys will have to let me know what you thought about that. Um, If you find any more interesting articles with more details on that, of course, send them over to me. If you have any cases or stories that you'd like me to talk about, obviously send those over to me as well. You guys can find me on Instagram at Suspect Podcast, or you can follow my personal Instagram at Katie underscore Kennedy, K-E-N-N-E-D-D-Y. You can connect with me there. Reach out to me. I love talking to you guys. Um, I know. It's just so fun. Like, I don't know. I feel like I have so many, like, 18,000 best friends listening to me, you know, so I really do appreciate you guys tuning in. And we're going to keep trucking along and releasing more episodes, talking about crazy shit on here, talking about shit that makes us uncomfortable. That's how we grow as people. So I'm never going to be the one to shy away from those conversations. Again, thank you guys for listening. I will hope to have another episode out before Thanksgiving. But if I don't, I hope you guys all have a very happy Thanksgiving. 
I hope you eat lots and lots and lots of food. Make sure you unbutton your pants when you go back for seconds so you don't have, you know, the little jean line on your lower stomach. You know what I mean, ladies? And yeah, have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. It is the best time of the year. Let's get out there, give back to our communities, give back to our people that we love, and just start getting prepared for 2023. This year went so fast. I just can hardly fucking believe it. Like, I literally feels like I just started my job yesterday and it was like at the beginning of the year. So I'm just very, very thankful for growth this year. That is what I'm most thankful for is like growing and just becoming so confident in myself and like finding inspiration within myself and not everything that the media wants you to find inspiration from you know like I think that's the coolest thing about like getting older and becoming like more aware and more confident in yourself is like you find that inspiration like through things that you love and not things that they want you to like be attracted to or be inspired by or like mimic almost in a way you know so yeah that's what I'm most thankful for this year Write me a message on Instagram. Tell me what you guys are most thankful for. And until the next episode, I love you guys.